Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Thank you for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio this Tuesday. We've got a couple of interesting guests with us, as always. Uh, An exciting piece of news that's going to come out on today's show is that Dr. Adriana Sanford is doing a new show called A Global Perspective with Dr. Adriana Sanford. When we get to that segment, listen in, because there are going to be a lot of great guests on that show. We have a number of shows coming up with her that are already scheduled. Some are already recorded, so stay tuned for that. And for a little more news and an update on last week, let's go to my co-host, Lou Wise. Lou, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about last week. Uh, we had our global show with the, our international correspondents, Chong Wang, reporting from uh, Asia. We had Roy Flo reporting from the EU and UK. And uh, Rob, uh, Norbert Orr uh, reporting from the U.S. on about 18 other countries. So, uh, if you want to, if you're into numbers and you want to hear how everybody is doing, good, bad, and indifferent, uh, certainly listen to uh, last week's show. Uh, the news. Uh, we have a couple of interesting uh, news items. First of all, it seems as though that Uber, and I think everybody knows who Uber is at this point, is having a serious problem. It seems as though that on this past uh, Saturday, uh, one of their self-driving Volvo XC90s uh, had an automobile accident. And uh, and it wasn't their fault. It was the fault of another car that ran a red light, and the uh, self-driving car didn't see it and knocked the car right over on its side. So uh, the uh, president of uh, Uber, uh, Travis Kalanick, uh, called for a critical summit meeting this morning, uh, yesterday morning, sorry, and has determined that Uber will do uh, next in order to maintain its image and keep its drivers safe and that they are going to hold off on the self-driving cars for a while until they figure out what the hell is going on. Oops. And we all know, we all know that expression. Uh, item two, and this is uh, this is really big. It seems as though that on February 16th, and it hasn't really become news until about this week, that Mr. Gates, Bill Gates has uh, had an interview uh, and called for a robot tax to offset job loss to automation. Well, it seems as though it's causing a bit of a ruckus uh, because uh, there's all kinds of issues with that. And uh, it's just my own personal opinion, which I'm going to offer today, is that this is really a silly idea. And it seems as though that maybe if uh, they want to add a tax to uh, robot use in manufacturing, maybe we should tax Microsoft 
for their uh, software program, which they've been using for the last 30 years or more, and uh, because they probably lost a lot of jobs when Microsoft came on the scene. And that's the theory behind the robot tax, that there's people that are going to be losing jobs, and they want to charge the manufacturer who is using a robot the same tax that an employee, a human employee, would be paying, payroll tax, Social Security, and income tax. It seems like a good way to halt uh, progress. It's a good way to halt uh, efficiency. It's a good way to halt all kinds of things when we're trying to improve on our manufacturing base. So now Mr. Gates, in in his insane methodology, wants to now charge a tax for the use of robots. And, uh, Tim, I think that we've got to do a show on this. I don't think that we'll get Mr. Gates, but we can probably get a couple <laughs> of uh, robot companies to talk on this topic. What do you think? I think Mr. Gates has been out of the business world too long and in the world of philanthropy too long. Yeah, it's so true. Be an interesting true. Show. <laughs> yeah, it really should be. I, I think that we need to do this. And um, I, I'm, I'm just so astounded by it. Imagine if a human worker does $50,000 of work in a factory. That income is taxed. And Gates said, if a robot comes to do the same thing, you think we tax the robot at a similar rate. Well, what's the purpose then of the manufacturer buying a $50,000 robot and now he's got to pay income tax, Social Security, and all the rest of the state tax probably because they'll all look to jump in on the government money grab. I mean, this is terrible. I'm done. I don't want to talk about because I've been upset with this all day. So. Do yeah, you have any right. comments on yeah, it? Be my guess. Yeah, well, I tell you what, we'll hold off for the show. People, you need to tune back in and pay attention to our e-blast that we send out to announce the show because uh, I think this one could be a little more animated than our usual show. <laughs> I'm, I'm so animated, I feel like a cartoon. <laughs> well, before we get lost in that, as exciting as it is, let's get to uh, the announcement of our new show with Dr. Adriana Sanford, a global perspective, which we're very excited to launch on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Lou Weiss and I are here with Dr. Adriana Sanford. Dr. Sanford was previously our senior international correspondent on Manufacturing Talk Radio, and we're very excited to announce that Adriana now has her own show. It's called A Global Perspective with Dr. Adriana Sanford. And we would like to congratulate her for being coming executive producer and show host of that new show, Dr. Sanford. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Lou. Thank you, Tim. I yeah. look forward to uh, to continuing to work with both of you. And I'd like to mention that your first show is going to be on April 1. Yes. For our listeners to uh, kind of pencil that in. But they'll get a lot of information from us between now and then about the show. Yes, uh, check out mfttalkradio.com and you'll see the information about a global perspective with Dr. Adriana Sanford. 
Dr. Sanford, I'd like to go through some of these topics that you're going to be addressing. These are fairly uh, sweeping as they relate to manufacturing, particularly on a global basis. So I just want to kind of walk through these one at a time and see from you, if you would share with our listeners, what the subject material is about and why it's important, starting with global supply chain ethics on which you've written a book. Sure. There are actually several challenges and uh, that our multinationals, our executives, and, of course, the supply chain face um, on a daily basis. You know, you're seeing different laws that are being amended and revised all over the world, and the implications of some of these laws on our executives, sometimes these laws conflict with one another um, or they compete with one another, and it leaves everyone in a very difficult situation. Uh, they're in a predicament because they're not sure which laws to follow or how to comply with different standards and regulations. And so supply chain ethics is actually something that everyone, you know, we, we wish we could have the answer as to what is right and wrong and uh, on, on, on every issue. And unfortunately, those issues continue to evolve and, you know, the, the regulations and the standards continue to change. And what I did was we put together a book on some of those challenges and ways that executives can work through those challenges. And as more challenges come up for our supply chain, we will continue to post them and post where there may be some pitfalls and where executives need to pay more attention. Um, for example, right now we're seeing that certain countries, such as France, has a new due diligence law out there and how to deal with supply chain. Things like this are going to pop up, and as they pop up, we will be discussing them on the show. Uh, Dr. Sanford, uh, one of the issues that are really becoming a major issue here in the United States, and that's about personal privacy and uh, the how the National Security uh, Council is uh, seemingly running over uh, personal privacy. Is this something that you're going to be discussing uh, on the show as one of the vital uh, concerns for our country? Personal privacy, data protection, data protection reform, all of this is really, really important. And as governments continue to struggle uh, to make new laws and law enforcement continues to try to combat terrorism, this will continue to mount uh, issues in this area. And so, yes, it is an area that we will definitely be focusing on on the show. And the new laws that are out there, right now we have in Chile, they're proposing, there's a new bill out there with regards to data protection um, and privacy. And this is happening in a lot of different countries. Their laws are coming out. And the way that they transfer data back and forth with the United States is going to affect um, our multinationals and obviously our manufacturing industry. So this is a hot topic. It will continue to evolve and there will continue to be pressures, pressures on our tech industry, uh, on our executives, and obviously on the supply chain. It trickles all the way down. Dr. Sanford, I know that uh, um, you have done a show with us, and, and the real one of the big issues here is you may be ABC multinational corporation and believe that your data is in Iowa when, in fact, it's in Ireland. Uh, is that right? 
Well, correct, correct. Well, you need to know where your data is, and you need, you know, we're talking right there. You know, we've had some issues in the past with companies and law enforcement, and especially U.S. Uh, the U.S. government accessing offshore data. And our show, we will cover what that is and how, you know, the U.S. court has ruled on these issues. Um, this has been a hot topic for some time. Microsoft was found in contempt of court because they wouldn't turn over emails stored on a server in Dublin. And we will cover that. We will cover, you know, some of these most serious challenges that our senior executives are facing. Um, and in some cases, it involves personal criminal liability. Yeah, an example of that is, is, is basically in, um, in Brazil. The Brazilian government requested certain information from WhatsApp. And when they didn't receive that information, they actually arrested a Facebook executive. Why did they arrest a Facebook executive? He was a, the, the head of uh, Latin America for Facebook because they couldn't get WhatsApp. WhatsApp did not have a presence in Brazil. And they did not believe that the company was giving them what they needed. They thought that there was uh, additional information that this WhatsApp didn't have and you know, was not providing um, and there was some speculation as to whether they could get it or not. So they arrested someone, you know, from uh, the uh, Facebook. So these are the issues that are out there and big concerns for our executives and obviously our multinationals. In uh, case, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Luke. I was just going to bring up the about uh, hack attacks. Does that go hand in hand with uh, uh, the issues that we've just spoken about? It does, it does rule in the sense that because we went through such a wake um, of hack attacks, our companies struggled to defend and protect our citizens. And as a result of that, we had an encryption explosion. Well, a lot of companies went ahead and fine-tuned everything to try and avoid, you know, these cyber criminals from getting in and accessing our information. But at the same time, what happened, uh, the other side of the coin, is that law enforcement was having a difficult time in getting information and tracking the criminals. So we've seen in, you know, I, I would say the last few years, several cases where the, especially the U.S. government, the FBI, you know, DOJ has requested information uh, that has been encrypted and access to that information. A, a, an example of that was uh, during 2015 and 2016 when Apple uh, objected to a challenge, you know, uh, objected to an order issued by the U.S. District Court to, to give them um, access to an iPhone and to create a tool. We're going to continue to see that as our companies, a lot of our companies are using more encryption to try to protect us from these hack attacks. And you're going to see challenges from law enforcement, from the FBI, from you know, different sources trying to access that information because they're trying to do their job as well. They're trying to go after the terrorists and and they're trying to, uh, you know, different ways they're they're trying to uh, to protect us. Dr. Sanford, I know that uh, in listening back to one of your previous shows, and I just want you to kind of explain to our audience the Microsoft issue where their, Microsoft was hit with a court order to provide emails that were stored on a server in Dublin, Ireland, what's the conundrum for Microsoft that any of us could find ourselves in? Right. The issue there is we really have to backtrack and take a look at what was happening before 
Microsoft uh, before this particular case where the U.S. government was, uh, this was an investigation that the DOJ was doing, and they requested certain emails uh, with, uh, they were with, from um, a Microsoft customer, and those emails were stored in Dublin. Microsoft said they couldn't do that. They could not comply with the U.S. warrant uh, without going through the longstanding MLAT, which is a mutual agreement on how to get documents, how to get information from the EU. And the government really didn't want to – this is a long process, so they, they actually asked Microsoft to just turn over the information rather than go through the regular process. Microsoft didn't do this, and this was an issue. It was an issue for the company, but the reason they didn't do it was because they feared that if they did comply with the U.S. court order and only did this without taking the, the, the process in Europe, they would not be able to work later in Europe. This would limit the ability of this company to continue to do business with EU countries. Um, and this stems back to the Snowden revelations. When Edward Snowden basically revealed to the world that there was mass surveillance um, and that we were conducting mass surveillance, this really affected a lot of our allies who believe in the basic fundamental right to privacy. So they looked at this as a human rights violation. And as a result of that, we've seen a lot more legislation. We've seen reform. We've seen EU data protection reform. Um, we've seen a lot over the last few years, including the invalidation of the EU-US Safe Harbor Agreement, which was a 15-year agreement on how to transfer data from the EU to the United States and back and forth. So we need to be very careful when we're working in this area, when we're talking and, and, and giving information, because the last thing we want is to be limited and not be able to later on work in one of these countries. And that's really what was at the heart of this Microsoft contempt case. It wasn't that Microsoft doesn't want to comply with, you know, with U.S. law. Our multinationals must comply with U.S. law. But basically they're asking, if we are going to be complying, let's make sure that it's not conflicting or competing with other laws of other countries, especially our allies, because this will place us in a predicament and we may not be able to work there or we may be hit with severe penalties. Uh, Dr. Sanford, uh sort of coming back around the barn onto manufacturing. Counterfeit product deterrence is a major issue as it re, uh, re, uh, regarding safety of products and machine reliability and so on. Uh, will that be uh, also a, a portion of your uh, guests that you have on the show and your discussions that you'll be having? Absolutely. Counterfeit products is something that affects our brand. It affects our consumer. It affects us in our fight against the war on terrorism. So this is definitely going to be a hot topic for the show as well. We're going to be talking about what is counterfeits and how to detect it, different methods of trying to protect our company, best practices, as well as we'll be going into blockchain and talking with uh, one of our guests is the Chief Technology Officer for Hewlett-Packard in Europe, Middle East, Asia, and Africa. And he will talk about his experience with transparency and fighting counterfeit and, and, and how blockchain helps these companies. So we will be getting into all the hot topics and, uh, and, and new issues that arise because when you have a new system, when you have a new way of implementing um, 
um, a, a system and it works, we want to share that with our listeners and say, hey, this is what this company is doing and, uh, and these are the best ways to handle this or these are the pitfalls. Heads up so that you don't end up having the same issues in your company. You know, another area that you want to address, Dr. Sanford, is anti-corruption and anti-money laundering laws. You and I have had some discussions in that area offline. It seems to put the executives and even the employees of multinationals at risk because they may not necessarily know that this activity is going on, but they're somehow caught up in the chain of events. Is that right? Right. When you're dealing with anti-money laundering laws, anti-corruption laws, we train our executives, and we hope that when they go out there, they're doing the right thing. Unfortunately, though, sometimes the training that we give is limited. Uh, We may be training our executives on foreign and corrupt practices and on U.K. bribery, thinking that we're all set, not realizing that the laws in other countries may go further. For example, Brazilian law is different from U.K. bribery and different from foreign and corrupt practices. And depending on which country you're practicing in, where your executives are located, there may be some additional training that you need to do. One of the individuals we're going to have as a guest on our show is Bruce Segaris. Bruce Segaris has actually helped 14 countries amend and revise their, counter, their uh, corruption laws and money laundering laws. And individuals like this are key in order to understanding where there may be some pitfalls. For example, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, these countries, if you do not report, you have your very own money laundering offense. This is important for our executives to understand. And if you are working in Europe, the European Court of Justice has said that in-house counsel um, do not have the same attorney-client privilege that we have in this country, in the United States. Again, these are issues that our multinationals as well as our executives may not be aware of. And when you're speaking about money laundering or corruption and you're talking to in-house counsel, you might want to be careful and make sure that you're in a country or in a location where that privilege exists between your executive and your attorney. And if not, you need to have external counsel deal with these issues. These are pitfalls. These are little areas where our executives and our multinationals may not be really aware of what's going on, and that's why a global perspective is so important. You need to take a look at this and the laws that may affect you, not only U.S. law, not only what we've done in the past, which is, you know, the basic training of foreign and corrupt practices. That's not enough anymore. We know, uh, Dr. Sanford, that uh, you're very much involved in major international human rights organizations like Amnesty International. Can you tell us uh, how that's going to play into your show? Sure. We are also going to be discussing the human right-related risks for the supply chain. This is a topic that has evolved and continues to be strong, and we're going to see a lot more of it. So I'm going to be calling on individuals that are leaders in this field in different parts of the world to discuss basically what's going on in their country, what the laws are, and how that can affect our industry. Um, Among the individuals we will be interviewing are um, the senior legal director for Amnesty International Worldwide. Amnesty International is the largest human rights grassroots organization in the world. They have over 7 million members. And the ability, it's great, and the ability to be able to speak and have someone, you know, who is part of this group tell us what is hot, where there are some, you know, some human right-related risks, 
is important because it gives us that hands-on, immediate access to some of the challenges that we can maybe help stop, you know, before they get out of hand. Um, other individuals will be, you know, uh, will interview from the Netherlands, will interview from Latin America, you know, different pockets around the world, uh, senior leaders in this area that can help us understand what's going on, where the laws are changing, and where we may find some human right related risks that perhaps we weren't even thinking about. Well, I'm really excited about uh, the show that's coming up and uh, the, the vast amount of knowledge that you have in this uh, sector. Uh, and uh, we can't wait for the show to begin. Likewise. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I think, uh, I think joining the private sector with academia, with law enforcement, with our lawyers, and our nonprofits, um, I think, is, 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 is going to be very, very useful for our listeners because they will see from a whole bunch of different angles where they may have some pitfalls, where they may have some issues, and hopefully we can help them out of those issues. Well, we certainly look forward to it. I know that the manufacturers who listen to our shows and our podcast will be very excited about some of the topics that you cover because clearly these are places in the supply chain where there are risks and the people that you bring on and you yourself are specialists to be able to explain that to our listeners. Again, this is going to be called the global perspective with Dr. Adriana Sanford. We'll begin populating mfgtalkradio.com with these interviews. Uh, you can check that out around April 1st as we launch the show. And we look forward to it. Dr. Sanford, again, congratulations on the new show. As executive producer and show host, we certainly look forward to it. Thank you, Tim. Uh, Thank you, Lou. I look forward to working with you and the opportunity. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to present this to our to our listeners. It's, uh, it's wonderful. Well, 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 thank you, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. Elevate your career and stay ahead of the curve with EISM. Brought to you by the Institute for Supply Management. EISM is the first on-the-go lifestyle-compatible learning initiative in the industry. It features hyper-short 15-minute modules and guided learning courses that can be completed in as few as three weeks, just right for you or your team. It's the world's largest one-stop online learning shop for supply management. Register today at ismelearning.org. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. 
All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're here with Paul Reisner, a fascinating individual who is an engineer, an inventor, an entrepreneur. He's president, CEO, and founder of Life Guide Systems. I'm going to let Paul explain what Life Guide is because it's actually very exciting. It's a, a kind of a blend of uh, augmented reality and virtual reality. Paul, I'm going to let you explain to our audience exactly what it is you are doing with your company. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, and it's great to be on the show. Right, uh, Lightgate Systems is an augmented reality technology that actually projects virtual images onto physical products, and it guides people through every step of a manual process simply by following lights rather than uh, looking at hard copy work instructions or even monitor-based work instructions. So it, it literally provides a digital roadmap uh, to guide people through uh, different types of operations that can involve assembly or inspection or part kitting or even sequencing just by following lights uh, rather than typical hard copy work instructions. I already want to be wearing this thing so I can talk to you about what it's doing. Sounds really neat. Who's, uh, who's using it, Paul? Yeah, well, first of all, Tim, it's a great thing about it is you don't need to wear anything. It's projection-based augmented reality. So just imagine a uh, projector that you might have in a typical conference room. We use industrial strength projectors that could be mounted vertically over top of a workstation where somebody is doing manual work. And uh, that way you don't have to wear any kind of a, like a, an eyewear that is different than your normal safety glasses in a factory. Uh, you don't have to hold anything. It literally allows you to step right up, be immediately productive, you know, by following lights on the, uh, the actual workstation itself. And uh, our customers include a lot of world-class manufacturing companies. In fact, uh, one of those customers actually documented approximately an 80% improvement in quality and a 40% improvement in productivity uh, using light guide systems, in this case, to train people uh, as compared to standard, you know, best-in-class work instructions that uh, re produce lower quality and lower productivity as compared to light guide systems. So we've got a number of worldwide automotive uh, manufacturers that use light guide systems, both automotive OEMs as well as Tier 1s. But we're also doing more and more work in the aerospace uh, world as electronics, medical is a rapidly growing sector for us, uh, agriculture, and just about every other industry as well. Okay, when are you going public and how do we get stock? <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we get that question a lot, and we're a private company right now, uh, but we are growing uh, so quickly. We just moved into our new headquarters here a couple months ago. And uh, as I had mentioned to Lou earlier, we're in 13 countries right now around the world, so it really is an international product. And uh, one of our main customers is standardizing on light guide systems on a worldwide basis as a part of their digital transformation manufacturing process. 
And uh, by the end of this year, we expect to be in 20 countries. So not only is it in an international product, but it also can be a job creation and a job retention tool uh, by making sure that people aren't being replaced by robots and automation on the factory floor. So let me ask you, Paul, you're in 13 countries, planning to be in 20 countries. Are these uh, plants that where you're making equipment or you're making product or these sales operations or uh, administrative offices, um, and your, your products are actually being produced here in the U.S.? That's right. Well, we've got our main offices here in Michigan, and uh, that's where we're basically have launched Lightguide Systems starting in 2005. So we've been around now for over 10 years, and we have some satellite offices now in Europe as well as in uh, China and a network of other channel partners around the world. But uh, those 13 countries, Lou, are actually installed light guide systems that are running, in some cases, in 24-7 manufacturing uh, environments, allowing our customers uh, to increase their quality and, and productivity through optimized uh, processes. So those are actually installed systems. And again, we expect to be at uh, up to 20 countries by year end here. So let's uh, pretend for the moment that I'm a uh, I'm part of the audience here, and I've got a manufacturing plant, and I produce uh, widgets, and uh, I do it the old-fashioned way. We we cut them to size, we machine them, we buff them, we do a million and one different things. And I'm now listening to your show. What is it that you could do for us? Well, first of all. Yeah, exactly. It starts with really kind of good baseline data before even light guide on the manufacturing floor. And uh, for instance, if you could quantify how much time people on a manufacturing floor are looking at work instructions or looking at a monitor, uh, quite honestly, that's all non-value added work from the standpoint that if you're looking at a work instruction binder, uh, you're no longer building product when you're doing that. So that's all lost productivity. So when you're getting the work instructions right on the product as a part of your natural workflow, those thousands and thousands of hours in a typical year when people are looking away from the work at a monitor or work instructions all becomes gained productivity uh, that translates to lower cost per unit of the product. So you not only gain the productivity, but just like GPS has dramatically improved the quality of the driving experience by giving you this great combination of the right information at the right place and at the right time. Uh, We can be similar to a GPS for manufacturing by doing the same type of a thing. But, Lou, we don't recommend Light Guide for every single manual process. Um, Where there are no mistakes being made and you've got a highly trained uh, workforce and you don't have a lot of variation on the product, uh, we find that's probably not the best fit for light guide systems, but where there's a lot mm-hmm. of variation at the workstation or you've got a lot of turnover and training or it's just a mission-critical operation where if it's not done right, it could be a major warranty problem. Those are the uh, workstations that we'd like to uh, to really jump into with our customers and make sure that those off that workstation never go into rework or scrap ever again. It, it's done right the first time. So is your function a job creator or a job uh, remover, for lack of a better word? Oh, it's definitely job creation and and job retention. And we know for a fact that some of our customers uh, that had uh, increasing variation on workstations 
Uh, and, uh, you know, when that variation goes up, even with experienced people, it becomes more and more difficult, you know, to be able to do uh, each variation exactly right. And oftentimes that's when automation, you know, or robot uh, starts to be considered. But LightGuide can be much more flexible on the factory floor in that it can be moved around uh, than a robot or automation, and it can make sure that the people are having the right tools in this form, augmented reality guidance that we provide uh, to, to be able to, even at high levels of variation, be able to produce the right parts uh, every single time. So it's definitely a job creation and a job retention tool. So in many manufacturing areas, particularly of the past, uh, change was always a hard thing to implement, and and I'll I'll go back in time uh, when our company All Metals and Forge Group became ISO 9000 uh, registered in 1994. There was a fair amount of pushback. You know, why do we have to do this? What good is it? Why do we have to do it? It's extra work. It's extra this. Do you get much pushback? Well, I'll tell you, it's uh, really interesting because, again, more and more manufacturers, despite a, a goal to reduce variation on the factory floor, in fact, in a lot of cases, it continues to go up. And as the variation goes up, it, the stress level on a factory, fa factory floor actually increases uh, just because, you know, it becomes harder and harder to keep up with that variation. So when LightGuide goes into place, it can actually be a, uh, not just improved quality and productivity, but it can actually be a stress reduction uh, process and tool for uh, the operators and employees on the factory floor. No different than, again, using the GPS example, GPS is a great tool in your car to make sure that you're getting to the right location on time without making any wrong turns. But when your GPS signal goes out, uh, your stress level goes up, and you've lost your tool. It's the same thing where LightGuide, again, can optimize manufacturing processes by, by increasing quality, increasing productivity, and quite honestly, decreasing stress on the factory floor. Just so uh, people have a better understanding of what uh, augmented reality is, um, we see it uh, every week during uh, football season, don't we? We do. Exactly right. So the, uh, when you're watching the TV screen, you know, the digital blue line and the digital yellow line and the, uh, even the digital third down and two yards to go that shows up right in the middle of the screen are all superimposed, you know, digitally onto the physical, uh, in this case, space. Now, that's not necessarily augmented reality because when you go to the football game, you don't actually see the lines on the field when you're physically there. You are seeing them on the TV screen. But true augmented reality is if you're looking at a physical product, you see the virtual images superimposed onto the physical images. Uh, so that really is what we're doing in a manufacturing floor. But to your point, Lou, on the football game, it is interesting because those digital images that show up on your screen are such an advantage to helping you know what's going on in the game that uh, when somebody has taken their son or daughter to their very first football game, uh, sometimes the question is, how come there's no blue line and yellow line on the field here? <laughs> so it actually, be actually becomes an expectation because it's a, such a valuable tool on the TV, it uh, is expected that it should be on the physical football field itself. 
So soon people won't want to go to the football game. They'll want to watch it on TV. <laughs> exactly which, right. Which I'm not sure isn't happening right now anyway. That's right. Yeah. I watch it on TV so I can scream at the ref, but it was a first down. The ball clearly broke the plane of the yellow line. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I think that you saw the very first bad ref call ever there, Tim, in that example you're using, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, Paul, you have been through lots of uh, companies and uh, involved with lots of projects. Give us a couple that were pretty unusual that you encountered. Oh, gosh, it's uh, really so many to choose from. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because uh, we've had some examples where, uh, you know, people are doing 100% inspection. And uh, these are a 100% inspection process that are designed to be uh, set up so that no bad parts ever leave the station. But yet, uh, we all know in manufacturing that you know 100% inspection doesn't mean 100% good quality. And uh, so you know these are checklists typically that are guiding people through what they need to do before a light guide. But yet, there's still many mistakes that are going uh, across that 100% inspection process. We've implemented light guide systems into these uh, inspection processes in some cases, and, and literally bad parts moving through there have gone down to zero. Uh, and in some cases, we can even randomize uh, the inspection points from light guide so that people don't just go through exactly the same inspection process every time. It means they have to be engaged in the actual process because the inspection points change as far as the order that they get inspected in. So it makes sure that with people inspecting parts, um, you know, that uh, they're just not going through memorization of what they need to do. They're more engaged with that process, which also means uh, the inspection process is more accurate. So because we're ultimately a software-based company, and we combine our software with any variety of off-the-shelf hardware that can involve robots or vision cameras or torque guns or barcode scanners. We can engineer a solution, you know, that typically matches up with exactly uh, what a customer requires to optimize their, their manual processes. If one of our uh, audience would like to get in touch with you, could you give us your uh, URL and or an email address for them to reach out? Yeah, sure. So our uh, website is www.ops-solutions, with an S at the end, .com. And uh, in there you can see a number of videos of Light Guide at Work for manufacturing applications. And there's also a section that you can request information on the website uh, that would come into us, and uh, we will respond back typically in 24 hours uh, to a request. And uh, once we get that request, uh, the next step is usually um, you know, following up and understanding more about the application and preparing a concept uh, for our customers on how Light Guide can help optimize that process. Are there any, um, and I know this is kind of a, a backward slap question, but are there any areas that your technology won't work? Uh, really, the only limitation that we have is um, in confined spaces. So uh, we use this projector, and uh, the projector requires line of sight uh, between the projector lens and the surface that it's projecting onto. And we can actually use uh, up to 11 projectors uh, to be able to guide somebody, for instance, around a complete vehicle of, of where do they need to inspect or where do they need to install a door handle, for instance. 
So it's very scalable from that standpoint. Uh, but when you're inside of a confined space, like let's say inside of an automotive uh, cockpit, installing an instrument panel, that's a little bit uh, difficult to do for the projector. And in that particular case, uh, there's other forms of augmented reality that we're working on that could actually deliver a solution uh, for that case. But other than that, uh, Lou, as long as we've got line of sight uh, between the projector and the, um, and the surfaces that we're projecting onto, uh, we've done large kitting cells, complete vehicles, uh, you know, just about anything. In fact, we're getting pulled more and more into medical because in that case, it's really not so much about saving time and money. It could actually involve saving lives as well. So uh, we're, uh, we're using the same type of light guide systems in the more and more medical type applications as well. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, so, uh, so, Paul, are you uh, projecting a light down that says cut? off this, don't cut off that. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. Yep, exactly right. And when you're just following lights, it makes it very easy uh, to be able to do the right thing uh, every time, Tim. Exactly right. Uh, we did interview some time ago uh, down south one of the shipyards that is using uh, augmented reality. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.